Um, hey, everybody. I want to encourage you um, in two things related to things to pray about. One, one is that with Blueprint coming up this fall and its focus being on the, on the gospel, like what it means to be a Christian for six weeks, it's going to be a really good time to invite people to come to church. Now, we try to make sure every week is a good week to invite somebody to come to church. In our staff meetings, what we always say is if somebody invites somebody to church, they should get two things guaranteed. Um, that is, if you invite someone, what you, the inviter, gets two things guaranteed. Your guest will hear the gospel. They will hear the message about Jesus and what that means. And two, we won't do anything unnecessarily weird that confirms all the idiotic stereotypes that people believe about Christians. Those are every week. When we put, that's all we're doing. Those two things, okay? But this fall, we'll especially be focusing through the Blueprint series on the gospel, and it would be a really good time. So I don't know if you guys remember when Mike Beresford was here almost a year ago. He's, we had a card and a thing, and you could write down two people's names. And we said, write down two people's names that you just like to be able to share Jesus with, and just ask God to help create an opportunity for you to do that. And um, so over the last year, I've had um, some different days between five and eight people on that list. Um, I get to meet more than you because you guys drag them here, and then they want to talk to me. And I, I mean, I've seen I've seen three of them come to faith. It's been really neat. Um, and it, I mean, God really wants people. You don't have to. Yeah, thank you. Um, but. The, yeah, so I just Anybody can do that Because it's, the Bible says is that, It doesn't say that the pastor is the power of God For the salvation of all who believe It says, right, it says The gospel is the message about Jesus is the power of God For everybody who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles So I'm trying to be an example And so I try to do my part But you are the only people who are going to meet The people that you know that I don't So um, do that But Blueprint is a great time for that So please, today Write on something two names of people you're going to pray for to get a chance to either invite them to Blueprint or invite them to talk about Jesus. Um, one thing in relationship to prayer about me, um, you're probably already praying for me because the Bible says you have to, but, <clears throat> but I have like five, four, like not serious health problems that are kind of annoying that make it just kind of difficult, and um, two of them may very well be stress-related. And so I'm trying to sort of get things organized, get things figured out, sort my way through all that. But um, you should be praying for me about that. And so um, I want to tell you that and let you know. I'm not about to give up or die or anything. So don't get, like, all afraid, and I don't need nine hugs after the service. I just need for you to pray for me. That's what I need. Okay, so if you would do that, I'd really appreciate it. So let's get at it. We're going we're gonna to talk about Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to the end. So if you have a Bible, open it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1833. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, and if you're new to this, um, on 1833, that page, you're looking for the big two and the little six that comes after it. The big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. Sweet. <clears throat> and this is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Colossae. And God the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it. And to write it this way. So let's look at this passage. <clears throat> Sorry. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. 
For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commandments and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Let's go to passage. So clear your calendars, right? We're going to do that whole thing. Um, We've talked for the last week that there's this general idea culturally that Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Um, I've said that I think that it's about as fair to say that um, religious people have their head in the clouds. It's about as fair to say that as that secular people have their head in the sand. Neither, both are kind of bigotry. The question is, you know, what is the earthly good and does heavenly mindedness contribute to it? And the problem is, is that with most of our secular neighbors, we actually disagree on what is earthly good. But one of the the misunderstandings we face is that we actually don't agree on what it means to be heavenly minded. A lot of people who aren't Christians or a lot of people who are Christians but don't understand what the Bible actually says about this or what Jesus said about it, think that being heavenly minded is being like uncommitted and uninvested in in the actual world that we live in believing that we're going to be in heaven where everything's going to be great, and so therefore we should just use up all the natural resources, destroy the environment, and not care about anybody as much as possible while we're here, and then get on to heaven where things will be better. So a lot of people who believe that Christians believe that, and that's partly because there are some Christians that actually believe that. That is not at all what the Bible means by heavenly-mindedness. Not at all. When the Bible speaks of heavenly-mindedness, what it's talking about is the fact that Jesus is in heaven and is himself the king of heaven. He is the one who is Lord, King, Master, Savior, and God. And to be heavenly-minded is to be Christ-minded. 
It is to be in line with the Christ of heaven, the Lord of heaven, the King of heaven, who is himself the creator of the earth and who has brought about redemption to ultimately redeem heaven and earth and to, it says in Colossians 1, we talked about a couple of weeks, reconcile the two to each other. So that if we're heavenly minded toward the one who is bringing about an earthly redemption, we would be of maximal earthly good. That's essentially what the book of Colossians and the New Testament and the Bible argues about what it means to be heavenly minded. Now, the way this passage starts is with the word so then, right? So what that means is, is that chapter 1 verse 1 through 2 5 is stipulated here. This assumption is if you understand everything that's already been talked about in chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 5 So then this would be true. So he's been talking about Jesus this whole time How amazing Jesus is how amazing what Jesus has done how we should trust him and believe in him and so on He says now so then if you have or since then because these people are in church hearing this right since then You've received Christ Jesus as What Lord what does that word mean? Right That means master, king, in charge, undisputed authority, right? So Jesus is not our general self-help buddy, but we've accepted that Jesus is king, okay? Since you've accepted Jesus as king, so then what? Continue to live in him, right? So what he's doing now is he's going to say, okay, we've got to be who we are, right? The more literal way to translate that is continue to walk in him, right? So like, now you've got to do something, right? Like you're alive. So what we're going to do is we're going to act out. We're going to be what we are. What 1-1 one, one through 2-5 says we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. We're going to actually be that. So, but what that's going to take is you and I are going to have to be rooted in, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as it was taught. And what that will produce is, and that we have to also affect, that is embrace ourselves, be overflowing with thankfulness. Right? Now that's a four-point sermon right there. But the minute he gets done with that, he turns from, from that to what we need to not do, right? And so f- try to follow this with me a little bit. If for a Christian, heavenly-mindedness is Christ-mindedness, then the goal is Christ-mindedness. If the goal is Christ-mindedness, now this may sound like philosophical slate of hand, but I, I don't think it is. If Christ-mindedness the, is the goal, then we have to have the mind of Christ. Do you follow that? If Christ-mindedness is the goal, that is, to be mindful of Christ, what are we being mindful of? Well, we're being mindful of the stuff that's in Christ's mind. Like, the stuff that he cares about that's important. Because he's in heaven. So what's he doing on earth? Well, his, his principles and his goals and his desires and his commands is, right? Right? So, Christ, so if we're mindful of Christ, then what are we going to be mindful of? The mind of Christ, that is what Jesus believes, what he cares about, what he— what he wants in us. The mind of Christ is not something that happens immediately upon conversion. There's a number of things the Bible says does happen immediately upon conversion. We're about to get to five of them. But one of the things that does not happen immediately upon creation is that we fully understand who we have just become when Jesus regenerates us and and changes us, and who the Jesus we've just submitted to is in his entirety. That knowing who we really really now are in Christ, and knowing who this Christ really is, that takes time. Having the mind of Christ is not one of the immediate things that happen. It needs to be walked out, built up, rooted down, strengthened as it's been taught, 
and then received so that it can be overflowing with thankfulness. If we're going to get there from here, this passage basically claims that we have, you've got to play offense and defense. The, the, in order to develop the mind of Christ, you've got to play offense and you've got to play defense. Right? I remember when I was in fourth grade, I signed up for basketball and there were four there were, not four, there were seven boys in my class that went out for fourth grade basketball. And after a season of um, practice and perseverance, I had made it into the top seven. And I remember during one of the games, um, Mr. Digman called me over. He put in a sub for me, and, and, and he said, he said, he said, Nikki, that was what I was called in those days. He said, basketball is one of those sports that you more do than watch. And you've got to get in there and, like, kind of do it, you know? It's not a spectator sport, right? And now that I'm older and having, I have now coached my own child in fourth grade basketball, I realize that that's pretty much true of a lot of fourth graders. Except Mr. Digman said it nicer to me than I think I said it to her. But the, the point is, is that, you, first of all, you've got to even know whether or not you're in the game. And that it's a, it's a participatory game. Right? Having the mind—listen, be, being justified, being made right with Christ, being divinely regenerated by the power of God, that's not participatory. That happened to you. You didn't really participate in it. Okay? But having the mind of Christ, understanding the significance of those things and how you walk and live in them, that is participatory. You have to be in the game. If you're not in the game, it's not happening, right? But the thing is that once a kid goes, oh yeah, we got to play basketball. Here's the thing. Basketball, like football and some other sports, is you're either playing offense or you're playing defense, right? And if a, if a player goes, well, I'm going to play offense. Look, this is not 1970s Iowa girls basketball where you got to pick, right? Back in those days, they had three people on each side of the court, and you could specialize, and it was three on three, which I, I would have been a starter, because I could only ever do one, right? But you've got to do both. So for and a great example of this is the NBA team, the Houston Rockets. One of the most talented offensive teams in the NBA, right? Their, their overall power ranking in offense is number two. They score an average 108 points a game. That sounds like a lot, right? Especially if you've been watching the World Cup. problem is, is that their defensive ranking is 25th, right? If you're coaching a basketball team and the halftime score is 26 to 58, what's your problem? It's, your problem is defense, okay? And if the score is 56 to 7, your problem is both, right? In 2013, there was a high school football game in Texas, of which this was the score, 91 to 0. So bad was the defeat— which is apparently only the second or third worst beating. There's one that—apparently there's a, there's a game from like 1917 where a team won 236 to 0 in a high school football game. The difference is that in 1917, a formal legal complaint of bullying was not issued against the other school. In this one, it was. The head coach apparently goes to like the hearing and says, listen, this is how bad the team we played is. Okay? By halftime, none of our starters touched the field again. Every punt returner was told to fair catch every punt no matter what, because we'd already run two back. 
by the middle of the third quarter, all of the second string players were out. We were playing them with basically all freshmen and a couple cheerleaders, okay? (laughs) We just couldn't not score. I mean, it's really not our fault. (laughs) You gotta be able to play offense. You gotta be able to play defense. You can't focus on just one or the other. You can't be Mr. Negative and you can't be Mr. Positive. You've got to do both. Paul is saying in this passage, listen, if you know who you are in Christ and you know the world that you actually live in, you have to do both. You have to understand who and what you are in Christ. The mind of Christ has to be developed in you. You have to play offense. You have to actively get better at understanding and applying that. And you have to intentionally understand, see, and reject certain things which will destroy your understanding of what it means to have the mind of Christ. And you have to do both if you are going to so then, just as you've received Christ as Lord, walk in Him. And that's basically all we're doing here, folks, is walking in Him. So let's go through those two things relatively rapidly. So offense and defense, I'm just going to keep going here for whatever. Okay. So the, the first, in order to do offense— You have to understand this. The mind of Christ has to be developed. There are a lot of things in Christian salvation that do not have to be developed. They just happen because God's in charge of them, and they just are. One of the things that is part of—one of the things that is developmental in Christian faith, however, is the formation of understanding who God is and who God has made us, which is a big enough thing for us to have to worry about. And one of the ways that you'll see this is how this passage argues. And what I want you to see as we go through the five things that Paul argues is this, that he is not saying, hey, you need to be better. Jesus wants these things from you, and you need to be better, and you can be better, and we're going to be better. I'm going to teach you some techniques about being better. He doesn't do that. What you'll see is that every argument that he makes about how we need to be different people, how we need to be transformed, all have to do with something we have has already happened if we've come to Jesus. If we've come to Jesus, these five things have already happened. All we have to do is realize that's who you are. You are these five, these five things that have, this is your new identity. All you have to do is embrace it, accept it, realize it, believe it, and then just act accordingly. So here are the five things. One is, the first argument he makes is that when you, when you came to Christ, when you accepted him as Lord— And as Savior, through the work of the cross and His resurrection, what happened was you came into union with God. And in so doing, you participate in all the fullness of God. Now, exactly what that means philosophically, that would take a while. But what he says here is, and notice notice that the word, connection word here is fullness, right? He says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That is, Jesus is fully God, okay? So before we get to who you're united with and what that means, let's start with who Christ is. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells incarnate, like he became a human being, and in him, all the fullness of God exists. It's there, right? And then he says, and you have been given fullness because you are in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. So Jesus is himself head over every power and authority that there is. He's the top, and in him dwells all the fullness of God, and that fullness—you see why he used the word in parallel? You have been given fullness in Christ. The fullness that is in Christ is in you, and that is the, f- the fullness of the deity. Now, 
exactly what that means in terms of how we interact with it, how it's present. That is a clear calendar kind of thing. Like that, and that gets a little, depending on whether you're Greek Orthodox, it gets an interesting discussion. But the point is, is that before we get to what that means, we start with the fact that in Christ, that's a fact. If the gospel is true, and if you've believed it, and if the risen Christ is your your savior, your regenerator, your deliverer, you have the fullness of God. If you believe that, that should do something to you. It should. It should do something to all of us. It should change the way you look at almost everything that'll happen today. Especially every temptation, everything you think you can't do, Everything you think you'll never be, everything you think you can't work out, everything you think can't be saved, can't be redeemed, can't be better, the fullness of God that is in Christ. Now, listen, you might think that's an overpromise, but that language is very intentional. And the reason it's intentional is because that is almost impossible for us to believe, and yet what we have to do is believe it. And then we can sort out exactly what it means and how we appropriate it and blah, 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 blah. I gotta keep moving, sorry. The second is sanctification, which is you have been set apart for something else and you are really free. You've been set apart for something else and you're really free. He says, you were also, okay, so circumcision is probably not gonna be your favorite metaphor in the history of the world, okay? It was kind of a big deal in Jewish society and religion, and so it gets used in the New Testament, but think it through, okay? Don't picture it, just think it through. Okay, you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but that done with circumcision done by Christ. Now, the reason why that doesn't read very well in the New International Version is because the word flesh is translated sinful nature, which is an okay translation, and they're just trying to make things more clear. But when you put the word flesh in there, the metaphor between physical circumcision and sp- a spiritual operation that changes our spiritual condition are connected to each other. Because what he's saying is this. He's saying— The Bible says everywhere that you and I were created in the divine image. We were created in the image of God. So there are certain ways in which God wanted us to mirror him, and he's created us that way. That's our nature. If if you lose that, you're not you, okay? But in addition to that, that nature has fallen into a sinful condition. The nature is broken. Now, the things that are part of the sinful condition could go away, and you would still be essentially you. That's why when people say, well, you know, I just— I'm just angry, and that's just me, and that's just who I am. You need to accept me. No, 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 no. You are the person God created in the divine image. What you're supposed to use your temperateness for, you misuse because of your sinful condition. You can lose that and still be essentially you. That's why this whole argument, this is how I feel, this is the way I am, therefore that's what I essentially am. Christians don't accept that. We have a nature. That nature is in a certain condition. Anything that is part of that condition isn't essentially you. It won't be part of you when you're in heaven, and it isn't part of your essential identity now, and it is part of what Jesus has come in and cut away. What this says is, though the sinful nature, the flesh, that is that which pulls you towards philosophies of human tradition and the basic principles of this world, which we'll get to in a minute— That used to dominate you. It had its tendrils into everything, and you actually couldn't overlive it. What happens in conversion and regeneration is is Jesus comes in, and he operates in such a way as that he cuts it away, like a circumcision. He cuts away something that's on top of something else and pulls it away, leaving you free. That's the point. 
you weren't free to be different before. And one of the things that happened when you came to Jesus as Lord is he did a supernatural work of freeing you from the domination of your sinful condition so that your, the divine image which is in you is now a real match for the flesh. He pushes this a little further because the next one is regeneration. That is, you are dead and you're alive now. That is, that there is not only moral capacity, but there is spiritual life. That is, we were both dead meat because of our guilt, but that's the next point. But we were actually dead. There was a, there was a spiritual deadness inside of us. There was a searing of our conscience that was growing. Our conscience was getting deader. Our, our hopes were getting duller. There was a spiritual life that we were meant to have that was dying inside of us. And when we came to Jesus and we experienced the miracle of spiritual regeneration, we became alive again with his life. It is like being dead and coming back to life. Sin was not just dominating us, it was killing us, and we were dead. And Jesus, with the same power that he came alive from the, the actual physical dead, has made us alive from literal spiritual death. And that's why baptism's so important. Because if we act out and live out and fully embrace through that ritual of conversion and salvation a number of things that happen. The water represents cleansing, right? But the reason why we dunk people is because we connect it with this metaphor of death and resurrection. The reason we put people underwater and bring them out is because there's a connection in this passage between death and resurrection burial and rising and the new life that Christ creates in those who come to him as Lord. Does that make sense? That's just the first three. There's, he keeps going, and it's just a few verses, right? The next is what we call justification or being counted right with God. That is, I don't know if you realize this, but People who are in um, law enforcement stuff talk a lot about recidivism rates, right? People who are felons, they come out of jail, they try to get going again, and then they fall back into stuff. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I can't get into that. I'm not even going to get to that. I'm, com I'm completely ignorant, probably, of all the relevant facts. But I will, I will tell you this. In human psychology, what I, what I do know is that there is a certain kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that comes from the label of felon, right? You, you don't have to think about race, because in America, this is all about race, right? You don't have to think about it. You go back to France in the book Les Mis from the early 1900s. I think it's late 1800s. I can't remember when it's from. But it's like, it's, it's French people, okay? And the whole first half of the book is about Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread, being labeled a felon, and never being able to get anywhere because he's a felon. Ultimately, the two things that get him anywhere is he gets saved, like he becomes a Christian, and then secondly, he denies he's a felon. He tears it up, and he, like, basically commits identity fraud so that people will keep crushing his soul so that he can try to do something, and he becomes an entrepreneur. There is a kind of degradation that comes from having the felon label, especially if you deserve it. And you see, justification does a number of things. One is it, it frees us from the proper penalty of sin. But what does justification do for you right now? You see, justification doesn't save you from hell right now. You're not in hell right now. But justification does something to you right now. Is it counts you just in Christ. It counts you pure, and it counts that as your true identity in Christ. It takes away the— 
the moral burden and the emotional scarring that pulls towards a sinful recidivism, and it sets you free from that, and it counts you as identified with one who does right and does what's just and does what's good, and that's who you are, and that's who you're called to be, and that's what you're created for, and that's what your life means, and that's what your significance is. You are among the just. That's not just what you are counted. That is your new identity in union with the just Savior. It ought to change the way you look at everything. And I imagine if you're a felon, it might be especially dear that God counts you that way, even if society counts you otherwise. The fifth is liberation. That is, he defeated our enemy. That is, we've got plenty enemies. <laughs> One was the sinful nature that he cut us loose from and, and gave us the ability to walk with him. But the other is, is that the whole cosmology of the Bible assumes that there are real, actual, spiritual, demonic forces that want to kill, destroy, maim, pillage, take captive, deceive, destroy. And when, and all of the teeth that they had on us was our death guilt. And when Christ justified us through the cross, he saved us and humiliated them. That is, he beat our—he beat one of the enemies we could never defeat. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the argument here that the Apostle Paul is making is he's saying, listen— you have to be emotionally, psychologically, personally rooted in these things. Who you are, the very character of who you are, has to have roots that go down very deep. You have to believe that you are a being that is in union with the fullness of God through Christ. You have to believe that you are justified and set right, and you are set by Christ among the pure, and that is what you are called to do. You are called to a nobility, because Christ has raised you to a nobility. He's defeated your enemies. He's cut you free from the slavery of sin. He's done all these things for us. If you come, and if, listen, if you can't get free of that, you need to come to Jesus. You need to not just try harder. You need to submit your will to His. You need to repent and believe. You need to have repented faith. You need to be saved, plead for regeneration, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, whatever you want to call it. The action is not try harder, do better. The action is come to Jesus who is the Christ who does these things. If you read that passage, you go home this afternoon, you read that passage, and you ask yourself, is there, is, is there any verbal idea of our action in this passage anywhere? And the only word that points to anything remotely related to anything we contributed to is a, is a one word about faith. It's the only word in the whole passage. When we put our faith in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is, is that Paul didn't come to give them advice. He came to give them the news that they were something else. And if they would believe that they were something else, they would be so rooted in it that they could walk in it and they'd be filled with thankfulness about it. Yeah? Okay, 90 minutes on defense. So the second thing is, and that's a joke if you're new, um, the mind of Christ has to be defended. 
You have to defend it. Like, you can't just walk around willy-nilly just letting whatever seeps in seep in. There has to be not just an act of, this is what Christ means. I need to be rooted in this and built up in it and, and, and be strengthened in the faith as it's taught by Christ, right? And taught in the scriptures. I need to also look at what is the product of of other things I should not be putting my trust in, and that when I believe them, it screws all this up. You get a couple terrible principles from an empty and hollow philosophy into your logic of the gospel, it fouls the whole thing up. And so there's two things that the Apostle Paul comes after, what he calls human traditions and the basic principles of this world. Now, um, if you have, like, if you have a New International Version Bible or an English Standard Version Bible, what it'll say— at basic principles of this world is it'll say something about elemental spirits of this world or the basic spirits of this world. Especially if yeah, you guys are using phone apps. It, if you're not using you Bible but something else, it'll probably say that. Because the new revisions have changed it. The problem is, is that I'm pr- pretty darn sure they're wrong. Um, <clears throat> the word translated principles, the, and the newer translations is translated spirits, um, is used in Greek to mean spirits. 300 years after Paul. So the first time that word is used in any Greek literature we found anywhere to refer to spirits is 300 plus AD. Now some commentators said, yeah, but it was probably used that way back then. Yeah, except principles makes a whole lot better sense in the context. In every, the four main places Paul uses it. Two here in Colossians and two here in Galatians. The concept here isn't that, isn't like you need to not believe in the philosophy of the spirits. The point here is is that there's two things that human beings build their ideologies on. So the first thing to recognize here is what Paul means by philosophy. Because you'll get some secular people who look at me like, look, Paul's against philosophy. I mean, how anti-intellectual can you be? Like, I mean, all philosophy is is the disciplined use of reason and logic to come to valid conclusions. And this guy's so religious, he can't even stomach that. The first century author, Josephus, used this same word translated philosophy to refer to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Jews, because in the first century, this word was used to refer to ideologies. There was Epicurean philosophy, Stoic philosophy, Jewish philosophy. It it was a set of ideas, not the concept of philosophizing itself. And there's two ways you can get to your ideologies, right, if you're not basing them on Christ or on Revelation. One is that you start from somebody at something everybody agrees on, right? I mean, most of us, when we argue things, we don't derive them from necessary philosophical truths. We start arguments from things we assume everybody agrees on, right? And then we argue from there. Well, why does everybody agree on those? Does that mean that they're right? Well, (laughs) lots of people believing things have never meant anything is right. Right? They might be, but they might not be. What they are is a tradition of humanity of some kind on which people build their thinking. Sometimes they're well-examined. Sometimes they're not very well-examined. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes they're not true. Right? But the other thing is this. What does basic principles of this world mean? Well, all of us are walking around in bodies, seeing our eyes, getting hungry, etc., There are certain ways almost all of us experience the world that we think of as the most basic concept of what life and experience is all about, and that builds assumptions into our brains that aren't necessarily even examined. They're just intuitions. And they seem like undoubtable things, and we just naturally kind of build stuff on them. Those are the ways we basically come to the premises we build our thinking from. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is is saying whether it's an assumption of humanity— 
or whether it's a presumption in the intuition of natural humans, if it's not according to Christ, listen, guys, <laughs> you need to dump that. It, it, and he says, that's what people do. We just, we just go to school, we walk around, we listen to things, we read to things, we talk with people. You just listen to people's casual conversations. They're full of this stuff. You li just listen to a casual conversation that you're kind of in but not really talking much, which is really hard for me. And you just think, listen to what people say and say, what are the assumptions that's built on? What's the assumption that's built on? What's the assumption that's built on? Why do they think that's true? Why do they think they can just say that? Why? What's the assumption that's— And what you'll find is that it's either a truism of the social community that we live in, or it's just assumed as humans, we just all sort of think that because of— but it's because of our natural experience, right? And so the unseen spiritual kingdom of God figures into neither of those. And yet— the apostle of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible assumes that is the most rooted part of reality. And that our human traditions and our elemental assumptions and intuitions about how must things must be, those need to get integrated into what Christ says is true, not the other way around. And so we have to play explicit defense in relationship to all the swirling thinking around us. Because most of it is built on what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophy. That is, what is built on human tradition and the basic elemental principles of this world. He argues both that it's false, but since I want to be merciful time-wise, I want to focus on why he says it's powerless. Like, one, he just is like, it's just not true, right? People will come after you about these things and say, you know, why don't you do this and why don't you do that and you should be doing this? And he's like, it's not, it's not what these things are, what they're for. A good biblical example of this is Jesus' disciples walking through a grain field and they like pick some heads of grain, it's the Sabbath day, and they eat it. And some of the Jewish folks were going to be like, you can't do that, that's working, right? You're threshing on the Sabbath day, that's work. We're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. You're just obeying God. Like, God's mad at you. And they're like, and Jesus is like, look, the Sabbath day is for people. People don't—people weren't—God didn't create the Sabbath day and say, okay, I created rest. Now I should create something that needs to rest because I like this idea of rest so much. Right? He created people, and then for their good, and because they dominate each other and will work each other to death, even their animals, he comes up with this thing called Sabbath where everybody has to rest. They have to let all their employees rest. And they even have to let all their animals rest. Because he cares about not even just people, but animals too. And so Jesus is like, you've got to get these things straight. So here's an evangelical Christian example. Reading your Bible and praying. Right? Should you read your Bible and pray? Depends on what you mean by should. Right? Morally, must you read your Bible and pray? Right? You'll actually be, you'll, you'll actually be at it a while finding a place in the Bible that commands it. A quite a long while, right? Even like commands to pray. There's lots of assumptions to pray. When you pray, do this. You definitely should pray. But, you know, try to find the place in the Bible that says that if you don't pray a minimum of X minutes, you're not really godly, right? 
I, it's, I mean, there's, there's so many people who, who go around, they didn't do their quiet time or the devotional time for three days out of the week, and they feel really guilty for those three days. They just feel like they're not a good Christian. In fact, we get this at the Christian school sometimes. We'll discipline a kid for doing something idiotic. Their parent will come in and say, hey, are you saying my kid's not a good Christian? And I'm like, what does that concept even mean? Like, I'll just tell you right now, and this might be a little offensive. Okay, so I paused to decide whether or not I should say it. I'm gonna. Um, <laughs> when a parent comes into the Christian school and says, are you saying my kid isn't a good Christian? The first thought I have is, is there a way I can share Jesus with this parent? Because they apparently have no idea what being a Christian is. Because the, the answer is, of course your kid is a terrible Christian. They're nine, first of all. Secondly, you have a really weird idea of Christianity, so what you've gotten yourself is a really weird idea of parenting, and so you're not helping your nine-year-old. In addition to that, the concept doesn't even mean anything. A good Christian, all that can possibly mean theologically is a human being who has supernaturally received the imputed goodness of Jesus. And is terribly living that out And will ultimately, out of the generosity of God's favor Be welcomed by him Pleasurably, because God takes pleasure in idiotic people Because he's extremely loving I mean, honestly, right? I mean, what is it? Anyway, the point is The point is, should you read your Bible and pray? Of course. Why? Because God has revealed himself. He's spoken and shown himself in the written scriptures. Christ is the most valuable thing that there is. Truths about him and what his death and resurrection means has been inscripturated in the Bible. By reading it, you can access that. It's enormously helpful. It's, it's food for the spiritually hungry, right? Are you a bad person if you don't read your Bible? Look, you're a bad person no matter what. Okay? I mean, we read the Bible because it's God's word to us and we want to know Him. Right? That's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible because of what, how it nourishes us and how truth can change us and how the Holy Spirit can speak to us through the inscripturated truth. We can go to a place that doesn't have a lot of admixture of nonsense in it. We can go to a place where we, we, we know it's God's Word all the way through, every sentence of it, right? That's why we read our Bible. If you didn't read your Bible this week, that's not a moral problem. It may be an offense problem. You may have only scored six points in the first half of this week. And so you might need to play offense. But it's because of what you'll access, not because of what you must do to be good. These, these rules and stuff that come from these human traditions and this ba- these basic ideas, they're not true. They don't understand what things are. One of the biggest problems that we have with the wisdoms of this world and the basic principles of this world philosophies is they don't understand what things are. They, they start treating humans in certain ways. They don't even know—these philosophies does, these don't know what a human is. They start talking about how we should relate to God. They don't know who God is. They start talking about relationships people ought to have with each other. They don't know what a relationship between divine, divinely created, God image-bearing persons are. 
And so when they say do this, don't do that, they're based on assumptions that aren't rooted in Christ. And they tend to be admixtures of decently good advice and decently terrible advice. But not only are they false, one of the really important points that the Apostle Paul makes is that they don't work. They're powerless. You see, all these personal philosophies and stuff, they're all trying to sell you on a better future, right? Like, yeah, you're going to religion for a better future. Well, that's cool. But like, listen, you know, there, there's other ways to do this, right? There's these psychological philosophies and self-help philosophies and personal discipline philosophies and so on, right? And you've got the, the personal discipline people tend to be into exercise and, you know, food and like, this is how you blah, 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 or this is how you save your— and you've got all kinds of people like, oh, you got to just think more positive. And there's all kinds of these philosophies. They're all trying to sell a better life, and what the Apostle is saying is, they don't work. Right? He says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Now, this is important. This next line is important. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. That's really important. There's something, like, I remember talking with somebody, and they're like, and we, I was talking, I was saying that Jesus, like, that Christian faith was, was actually unique in the world. Like, that it wasn't like every other religion, and it just, it wasn't like, hey, whatever your religion wants, cool. It was like, people should believe in Jesus. And they're like, are you saying that everything in other religions are false? And I was like, okay, that is the most bigoted statement I've ever heard. I, no, I'm saying that saving truth is most right in Christian faith. That doesn't mean everything is wrong in every other view everywhere in the world. Right? You can have all kinds of stuff right, but you can have, and when lots of things are right, things have a very strong appearance of wisdom. But if you get one really important metaphysical point wrong, you're dead in the water. And a lot of these philosophies based on human wisdom and the basic principles of this world have a lot of functionally helpful wisdom to get to outcomes that worldly wisdom and basic principles of this world say our outcomes should be. But the minute you go, okay, wait, my outcome is I want to have the mind of Christ, all of a sudden you go, wait a second, I'm not sure this is that wise. They have the appearance of wisdom with their—and these are some of the tactics, right? Self-imposed worship— False humility and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And you're really like, well, that's, I mean, I'm after more than restraining sensual indulgence. Well, maybe, but um, the best social science I know say that that's a quarter, at least a quarter of your life is dealing with impulses. There was one study in Germany, apparently, where they gave people beepers, and when they went off in like 15-minute intervals, they were asked the question, are you, when the beeper went off, were you resisting a temptation of some kind, some kind of impulse, or had you just finished resisting one? Or not resisting it. And apparently it was like 80% of people checked off one of those two boxes, and these are Germans, for God's sake. Sorry, that was a little bigoted, but they would have laughed. The point is, is that restraining sensual indulgence is the majority of success and failure in life, no matter what you're after. The things that really make the difference in people succeeding and failing— I was talking to my brother yesterday about, about scientific advancement, and he said, he said, um, here's the thing that we find in research in scientific advancement. You don't want the really smart undergrad who has a super high IQ and has started a bunch of studies. You want the mediocrely intelligent guy who's finished one. 
because it's not brilliance that even creates brilliance. It's brilliance plus tenacity. Tenacity is discipline. It's the ability to control impulses and finish what you start. How do you get that kind of motivation? Well, the best way is actually to know what you're created for by God. And to be motivated on those five levels about what your identity really is, to be freed from the, the pride which masquerades as false humility and the harsh treatment of the body that really isn't for your good. What real faith does is it produces God-imposed worship that actually connects with God, that God enjoys, and that God responds to, rather than self-imposed or self-made-up worship. Which all through the Bible, listen guys, this is kind of an important idea these days because there's a very strong idea that like you can come from a general intuitional notion about God and develop from there logically a religion about how you should relate to God. And what that produces is what this Bible passage calls self-imposed worship, which is looked at derisively. In fact, in a number of places in the Bible, God says, I never asked to be worshipped this way. Because what's the most devoted thing you could possibly do to God? Which is what people did to the self-imposed God Molech. They burned their children alive. Because what more devoted thing could you do? Perfectly rational from a certain set of assumptions. And God was like, I never asked for this. I told you how to worship me. It did not include this. And now that may not be how you would derive from worldly principles how you gonna, you're going to self-impose worship. But I know a lot of people who are like, well, I worship God in my own way and I do this thing and I— That is not a trademark sound effect. That, that is not, that is not a, a helpful idea if Christ—if if you are thinking and reasoning according to Christ. Worship is God-imposed. Not pleasure, pleasurably wise. We worship God because we want to. But there are norms and sets and ways and stuff. God has said, you should worship me like this. Because self-imposed worship tends to be idiotic, unhelpful, seemingly wise, but enormously destructive. And that's what our made-up religions tend to be, according to this passage, which I believe is God's written word. It also produces an enormous amount of false humility. Humility is being in right relationship with reality in its proper proportion. If you have a philosophy that's not in touch entirely with reality, you, you by definition can't be humble because you don't know how to be in right relationship with reality. You, you won't be self-forgetful. You will, you'll produce some kind of like humility thing on the basis of something else. And what will happen is you'll feel like you're humble. And so you won't be as much on the lookout for pride. And pride will actually run rampant in your false humility. You'll be the most arrogant person within a 10-square-mile radius. Or you would be if everybody else wasn't thinking that way. And even the harsh treatment of the body. I mean, think about, I mean, think about what's said here, right? In this passage, there's four things covered, right? There's... Mysticism, right? Don't listen to people who like go off about what they've seen and blah, blah, blah. Their unspiritual mind puffs up whatever, right? Humility, discipline, and worship. Good or bad things? Good, right? Things that we need to do more of or less of, right? Are, are, are any of us in danger of worshiping too much? That like, we have so overblown God's goodness. I mean, good heavens, right? <laughs> Probably not, right? 
Mysticism, like are most of us in danger of being too much trying to connect with God and wanting to know what he believes and trusting him at every moment all the time and responding to intuitions and impressions that we think might be in line with his word and what we think, right? Humility? Anybody want to check that we've overdone real humility? Right? Probably not. And discipline. I mean, honestly, right? Discipline? I mean, are we that, are we that group of people that we're like, oh my gosh, we're just, just always doing the right thing at the right time. Just always resisting all impulses and just, I mean, gosh, it's just, it's crazy how efficient we are. Right? I mean, no, we're all just kind of like, I mean, everybody's like, if, if, if I'm like, what do you need to do more? Not eat as much, go to the gym more, use my time well, not watch as much television, actually discipline my children, not waste my boat. Right? I mean, that's, that's our list of regrets, partly because we're emotionally and morally shallow, but partly because we're just not disciplined. Right? I mean, that's not, a, so then, but, but Paul's saying, well, you know, these things are not good. And you're like, what? no, what he's saying is, is that, we need all four of these things really bad. We just need to believe in them not on the basis of some kind of concocted human wisdom or the basic principles of this world, but we need to have our minds renewed according to Christ, and then on the basis of Christ, re-receive worship, humility, mysticism, and discipline. And when we receive those things on that basis, we are going to have rituals. I mean, like, the whole, like, oh, you know, rituals. Like, how hypocritical would we be? We're like, yeah, well, we don't have any rituals. Please bow your head while we pray. <laughs> right? We can receive all those things back on the basis of Christ so that they will enormously help us, but only when we receive them and use them on that basis. That's why everything starts with an offense and a defense. You have to be in the game. You have to be playing offense. You have to be playing defense. If we are going to be heavenly-minded, we have to be Christ-minded. If you're going to be Christ-minded, you have to develop the mind of Christ. If you're going to develop the mind of Christ, you need to understand, and with increasing depth and beauty, who Christ has made you through his action of salvation. And then you need to embrace that identity and try and live it out. And in figuring that out, you need to play defense. You need to, you need to learn to see worldly wisdom and wisdom based on the basic principles of this world for what they are, and you need to put them out and incorporate them as they fit in with Christ, not incorporate Christ as he fits in with them. And the product of that is going to be somebody who is overflowing with thankfulness, which sounds happy, right? Overflowing with thankfulness, and two, will have the ability to restrain sensual indulgence. There will be character, and there will be joy. There will be moral beauty and aesthetic pleasure there will be, there will be something great, but only if the mind of Christ is formed in us. It is the only thing you have to participate in for what Christ has done to truly develop into all it's meant to accomplish in the functioning of your life. Does that make sense?
great. Let's pray. Lord, this is a really long and complex passage and says so much. And it's one that um, we want to understand, see, obey, profit from. We, 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 we want to be people who, in whom the mind of Christ is being developed. We want to be free, strong, courageous, noble, truthful. We want to worship you as you have imposed the truth of worship. We want to be really humble. We want to utilize discipline to prepare us to have the character to serve and love and follow you. We pray that you'd help us to be a more Christ-rooted, gospel-centered people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.